Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What is the most important subject in the universe? Think about it for a minute. What is it? No, no. The most important subject in the universe is truth. Because if you live by truth, then you and your eternity is secure. But if you ignore truth, then disaster awaits you some, at some point in this life and certainly in the afterlife. And now we have a new book that is actually the number one book in apologetics, new release in apologetics, just come out by my friend Abdu Murray. The book is called Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. And there's a lot of great insights in this book that are true, by the way. That's important. <laughs> They're true. And Abdu is intent on saving truth. Now, Abdu's been on the show before, but not for a while. So we're going to start at square one with him. He is the North American director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And for, the, for those of you who don't know Ravi Zacharias, consider yourself undereducated. Just Google Ravi and you'll see who he is. Google Abdu, you'll see who he is. A-B-D-U, Mary, M-U-R-R-A-Y. Uh, he's written uh, a few books. This is the newest one, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning in a, uh, and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. And the interesting thing about Abdu is that he grew up as a Muslim, and he's going to tell you his testimony here as we get into this. He actually investigated the evidence and became a Christian. Abdu, great having you on the program again. Frank, always pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. Let's go back, and I know we covered this probably three or four years ago when you were on the show, but many of our listeners may, may not have heard that. Give us kind of a, you know, a three- or four-minute version of your testimony, just so people can see where you came from and where you are now. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so I was uh, born in the United States. I, I come from uh, the family of liberties and immigrants, and uh, I was raised as a, as a Muslim. I was a very proud Muslim. I uh, came from the Shia sect, so there's the two sects, the Sunni and the Shia. There's many different ones as well. There's some even outside of those two. Um, but I was a Shia, uh, and I was pretty serious about it. Uh, I, and I would have none of this sort of, it's true for you, it's fine. If it's true for me, my truth is different, that's fine for me. Even as a young age, I would have none of this. Uh, I just sort of didn't buy into this postmodern idea, because if it's true, it's just true. And I wanted to believe true things and not false things. But I also had it in my heart that other people should believe true things and not false things. And I thought Islam was true. Therefore, I thought I had a duty to actually express it in the most compelling possible ways to the people that I met. Now, growing up in the area I grew up in, in Michigan, uh, it's now a very diverse area, but um, it was pretty much white. Um, we were sort of the dash of olive oil, the sea of rice, uh, as it were, in, um, in uh, my area. So uh, Christians, or at least self-professing Christians, were sort of low-hanging fruit. There were atheists, and there were Jews, and there were, you know, people of other, other religious persuasions. But for the most part, it was people who thought or claimed to be Christians who were the ones who I would interact with the most. And I would do it in a very conversational way. I was never one of these sort of confrontational people um, uh, who was trying to get them to believe something different. 
Um, it was more of a conversational way, getting them to do something different. So I'd often open up with a question, or at least some form of this. And I did this, by the way, in middle school and high school and to college and everything, um, with people who were older than me, my age, whatever it might be. Um, I'd ask them this question, why are you a Christian? And it was really an equal opportunity, space knocker, outer, other kind of a situation where it didn't matter what you believed, but Christians were looking at food, as I said. So I'd ask them the question, why are you a Christian? It's a good question. I think it's a question uh, everyone who professes to be a Christian should be able to answer. Um, uh, it's not to other people, than at least to themselves. Um, but most of these folks had never actually been asked the question and never asked themselves that question. Why are you a Christian? Uh, so when I asked them that, it was, uh, you know, our, you're my mutual friend, Greg Kokel's uh, joke. It was the sound of silence. It was the Art Garfunkel response. Um, right. They had no idea why they why they believed what they believed, even if they really believed it in the first place. So they'd say something like, you know, oh, I was, we go to the Presbyterian Church on Christmas and Easter, so I guess that makes me a Presbyterian? And they would even answer sometimes in the form of a question. So I'd go, mm. are, are you sure? Because I'm not sure you even know. Right. So, uh, so I would basically start saying to them, um, tradition is the reason you believe something. It's because it's tradition. Someone else believes it. Why would you trust your eternal soul to a worldview someone else believes but you haven't thought through? And then I would begin my attacks, you know, saying that the Bible wasn't trustworthy, that the Trinity makes no sense, um, and actually degrades God's greatness. Uh, the idea that God himself would become trapped in a mortal body that dies at the very hands of the sinners he creates um, seems to denigrate and insult a, a God who would be great. So I would go through and I would sort of knock the face out of some people, or at least try to, with these challenges. And most people had no response to what I was saying. But there were a few people, and, and God, thank God for these, for these, these few people, who actually knew what they were talking about, or at least knew how to find out the answers to my questions. And they not only responded to my objections, but they had a few of their own that I had to respond to. And so I found this to be engaging. It wasn't, I didn't consider it rude. I didn't consider it mean-spirited. Um, I just thought, well, this is annoying because I like to win my debates. These guys are a little tougher than the average person to win debates with. How, how old were you at this time? Was this before law school or after law school? Because you went to law school. You're an attorney by by uh, do, by degree. Is this when yeah. you were going to law school, or, or how did this happen? When? Oh, before, actually. So the, the really? Okay. really started before. Where people started right. to actually respond to me in a way that made any kind of sense was when I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, there were a couple of people, maybe it's the people in high school before that, but for the most part, what it really started to hit home for me was my sophomore year at the University of Michigan. Uh, there were two guys going door to door um, at the apartment complexes, and uh, you've, you've spoken at University of Michigan, and, oh, yeah. and I have, and I went to school there, and you know that it's basically Berkeley, California, but colder. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> That's right. It's colder, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's got its, got its uh, decidedly left-leaning uh, sort of student body and faculty. Um, not exactly warm to the Christian faith. I wouldn't say overtly mm. hostile, but not exactly warm to it. Um, and so these guys are going door to door, and it was like amazing to me. So when they came to my door, I was like, oh my goodness, there's these two guys, these two Baptist guys, want to talk about Jesus and talk about religion. Mm. Mm. This is the best thing ever. These guys actually deliver um, instead of me going to find them. So they came in, uh, and we had it out. Um, it wasn't like argument. It was just, I made them very uncomfortable, obviously with the level of questions that I had for them for like three hours that first time. Not only that, but what are you, like 6'5", 280? I mean, <laughs> I mean <laughs> you're kind of an imposing presence anyway, man. Yeah, yeah, that's what they tell me. That's what they tell me. <laughs> but these guys, you know what, despite that, they really, honestly, they, I could tell they, they cared about where I went to heaven, went to heaven or not. And uh -huh. I grew to really love these two guys. I really did. 
Um, and they knew that I cared about if they went to paradise or not. So we had this mutual desire for each other's greatest good, actually, in, in the discussion. Sometimes it had become a who's right, who's wrong. Yeah, of course, that we're human beings. But for the most part, it was because we cared about each other. So how long did this go on? And by the way, we're talking to Abdu Murray, his new book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. Before we get to the book, we just want to get a sense of where Abdu was, where he came from, how he got to where he is today. So how long did this go on with these 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 two guys? Were these college students coming to you or these campus no. uh, leaders well, of some kind? Volunteers at a church down the street. Older really? Guys. Wow. They were, oh. Yeah, they were pretty, pretty, pretty older guys. Um, uh, and it, they, they went on for uh, a semester, maybe even, to the, even in the next year. But they come back like every Thursday. Um, and they kept on coming back. Sometimes they wouldn't have answers. Other times they give me the best answer you can give a guy. I don't know, but I'll get back to you. And then they did. They actually did get back to me. Mm. Um, and that's when I began to say, this isn't as stupid as I once thought it was. And um, so, make a long story, just a little bit longer. Um, I uh, <laughs> was trying to knock the faith out of these guys by showing them a foundational contradiction in the Bible. And I was reading it. And it first came to me when I was reading the Bible, Luke chapter 3, verse 7, and the following verses, when John the Baptist is baptizing people, he says, Who told you to flee from the wrath to come, meaning God's judgment? For I say to you, uh, then he said this, he said, Do not even think to save yourself, you have Abraham as your father, meaning as if that would save them. For I tell you, God can raise up sons of Abraham from the stone. What he was saying is, tradition does not save you, truth saves you. And I have been saying that to Christians, but no one does me. Hold the thought. Hold the thought, Abdul. We're going to come back to that. How did you? How did they deal with that? And we'll reiterate it after the break. We're talking to Abdul Murray's new book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in two minutes, so don't go anywhere. What's the most important subject in the universe? That would be truth ladies and gentlemen if you have truth and live by it things are going to turn out well if you don't have truth or you do have it and you ignore it or suppress it things ultimately are not going to turn out well and there's a brand new book number one on the apologetic new releases by my friend abdu Murray, former muslim now a christian working with ravi zacharias international ministries in fact he's the north american director he's also uh, a accomplished attorney as well. So he knows how to think. He knows how to deal with arguments. And uh, before we get into the contents of the book, we're really kind of give, giving you an overview of how Abdu became a Christian. So Abdu, pick it up uh, where you were just before the break. You you were trying to give these these Christian folks who came from an area church at the University of Michigan, they, they came to try and convert you to Christianity, and you came back at them with some sort of what you perceived to be a contradiction in Christianity. Pick it up right there. What happened? Yep, so I was reading the Bible, trying to find a foundational contradiction, you know, not a numbers miscalculation or a rounding up or a whatever, but an actual, in Luke it says this, and in Matthew it says this, and these are contradictory. Right. I was trying to find that, but I came across Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and following, and John the Baptist is baptizing people, of course, and that's why he's called that, and then, um, you know, he says to them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Referring to God's judgment. Then he says something remarkable, and this really stopped me in my tracks. He said, Do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. In other words, what he's saying is, is that you're not going to flee the wrath to come. You're not going to escape the, the just do of your sins, because you're Abraham's children. You're going to do it because truth is what's important. In other words, truth trumps tradition. Right. Um, well, I had been saying that to Christians, and no one had ever asked me, why are you a Muslim? It was... 
it's so poetic that John the Baptist actually asked me this question. Is it tradition or is it truth you're after? And why it's poetic is because as a Muslim, I believe the Bible had been changed and corrupted, so I didn't want to believe what it said. But the power, I think, of the Word of God, born aloft and made reliable over the course of 20 centuries so that a, so that a college kid could be reading it, that's the word that convicted me that the reason I believed and I had enough, I had sort of rationalized with the evidence that I had gathered that Islam was true and everything else was false was not because it was foundationally true, but because I wanted it to be true, because tradition was more important to me. Well, that mm. set me on, 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 a, on a journey to say, I'm not going to believe it because it's tradition. I'm going to believe it because it's true. I was fully confident it was true, but I got more objective about things. And that's when I began to see, not only is the Bible not changed, I don't even think the Quran allows for it to be changed, if you read the Quran carefully. That's right. Um, but, but history also shows that it has not been changed in any foundational or fundamental way. Um, that what we have now is what they wrote then, to sort of paraphrase Dan Wallace. Um, but not only is it reliably transmitted, but it actually says what actually happened. When you look at the, the, the history, especially of the resurrection. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world by his death. He did, in fact, die. But in order to prove that he would be the one who takes away the sins of the world, he rose from the dead. Um, and that evidence was incredibly compelling to me. And at some point, not only was it intellectually compelling, but it was existentially compelling. Because the God I wanted to believe in, in Islam, you know, Allahu Akbar, God is great, God is greater, the greatest possible being. The greatest possible being is only found in the Christian faith, because in the Christian faith, the greatest possible being expressed the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. Only the cross is not only um, uh, stated in word, but done in deed. Uh, so it became evident to me that I have to give my life to this, because the God I'm looking for is the God of the Bible. Now, I remember you saying this at some point, that you really were looking into the evidence on both sides, and you're, you were in your office studying, and you had a stack of, of Islamic apologetics on one side of your desk and a stack of, of Christian apologetics on the other, and your dad kind of walked by and looked at you, and he said, my son yeah. is pursuing truth. And yeah. he didn't realize that as you were looking at the truth, you came to the opposite conclusion as to what he believed as a Muslim. So how did that deal, yeah. how did that affect your family? And at what point did you become a Christian? Because this started when you were a sophomore in, in, at University of Michigan. By, when did you, when did you really come out as a Christian, if you will? Yeah, so the, so the journey took nine years. Um, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't take nine years because the answers were hard to find. It right. took nine years because the answers were hard to embrace um, uh. Uh, because of the consequences and that kind of thing. And without going into too much personal detail about, right. about all that, uh, what you recounted was true, that uh, there came a point when I, I, I saw, uh, I began to ask myself the question, why can't I embrace it as true? And then almost as if prayer was answered, it was shown that it would have too much impact on people I loved, um, and it would hurt too many people, including myself. But also, it would um, change who I was. I, I, I liked being a Muslim. I was a good one. I mean, I wasn't perfect. I didn't keep the Sharia perfectly or anything like that even close. I was just really, really devoted to trying my best. Um, but I liked being one, and um, amongst all the consequences, not the least of which was identity, I didn't want to give that up. And so that's why I realized the foundational truth about the search for truth, that we, also, we, we often don't want truth, we want comfort. And, and right. as Lewis said, if 
you look for truth, you will find comfort. But if you look for comfort, you will get neither. Only soft soap to begin with, and in the end, despair. Mm. And um, so fast forward a couple of months after that, um, uh, not even a couple of months, I don't think, um, and that's when I sort of realized, look, truth always comes at the price, always. Um, uh, in fact, the truth himself paid a price. How could I ignore that? Because I might be uncomfortable. It's just, I, owe, I owe it to the truth incarnate to pay even a modicum of what it might what it, what it cost him um, to uh, to embrace that. And that's when it became a reality for me. So it was I did that um, in in, in uh, June of 2000. June of 2000. So I was uh, my first year as a, as a lawyer. My first year as a lawyer, actually. Wow. Uh, and then you wrote uh, Grand Central Question. You had a book prior to that too, if I recall. Uh, and then yeah, apocalypse. Yep, apocalypse later. Yep. Yeah, and then you had Grand Central Question, and now you have this new book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. So when we opened the program saying, what's the most important subject in the universe? And I know a lot of people listening were going, well, it's God, obviously. Well, it's truth, and God is the truth, and truth encompasses everything that we do. And if you follow the truth, it will ultimately end well. If you don't, it won't. But, Abdu, in the new book, Saving Truth, you talk about this being a post-truth world. But what does that mean, post-truth world? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, it, it, so in 2016, at the end of the election cycle, um, uh, Oxford English Dictionary's names its word of the year toward the end of the year. And, of course, mm-hmm. the timing happened to be just perfect. Um, right. And they named their word of the year to be post-truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the word of the year for Oxford Dictionaries is a word that captures the ethos, pathos, and fascinations of that, the culture, Western culture more specifically, for that year. And post-truth wasn't a new word. It was, it was coined, I believe, in 1992, but it was used 2,000 more times in 2016 than in the previous years, I, I believe, combined. And what it means is uh, a post-truth culture is one that elevates feelings and preferences over facts and truth. So we don't deny that truth exists. We don't even relativize it. We don't say it's all relative. What we're saying now is, yeah, truth exists, even objective truth exists, but I don't care, because my mm. feelings and preferences matter more than the fact and the truth. I would submit this, that that's actually worse and harder to deal with in relativism, because relativism, as you have done so well in, your, in many of your um, dialogues on, 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 on campuses and in debates, relativism is defeated by showing itself defeating nature. But post-truth isn't because they're not, they, they don't acknowledge objective facts that actually exist. And if they line up with, their, with people's preferences, okay, great, then I accept them. But if they don't, they don't deny them. They just don't, they just don't care about them. And that's a little tougher to deal with. Yeah, in fact, you even quote in the new book, Saving Truth, uh, I think it's Kinnaman you're quoting here, where mm-hmm. you say something like, uh, Christianity is background noise that can safely be ignored. Even if it's true, in other words, that, well, I don't even care if it's true. I mean, that's the hardest thing to deal with, Abdu. It's not, it's not people who are really against you. It's people who don't care. It's just they're totally apathetic. So yeah. how, do you, how do you move somebody from apathy to caring? If, I mean, if I knew that, I'd, I'd be a billionaire, obviously. But yeah. how do you get people yeah. to care about this stuff? Do you, you have any clues for us? What do we do? Sure, yeah. I think that actually there is a way to do it. And I think I've seen it. I, I know I've seen it work. One of the things that I've been privileged to see and be blessed with as I travel around with Robbie or other parts of our team, we go to these universities, is we see hundreds, if not thousands, of people come out 
Uh, at the University of Michigan, we have 3,500. At Michigan State, we get almost 10,000. And other universities, uh, we've had similar numbers. For students at some of the most sort of left-leaning, um, or I would even say anti-Christian um, campuses come out and they want to know the answers. We were at Yale and they were asking us questions. And they were asking questions in a very, I think, sincere way. They were mm. from skeptics. So what, what is the secret? I think this is, this is what's going on, and this is why I think we, how we think we can get people to care. One, they obviously care about certain things. And their preferences are in an indication of their care. What do they care about? So, if it's a social justice issue, if it's um, uh, you know even a you know a gender and sexuality issue, I don't know what it might be, or even it's a truth issue. If we just listen carefully, we can find out what people care about, and then apply the gospel to what they care about. That's why Paul says, "Let our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt, so that we know how to answer each person." Not right. each issue or each controversy. He's saying each person, because the questions they ask are the modes by which people are answered. Because questions don't need answers, but people do. Well, so that's, um, I think, yeah. I was going to say that what you just said there is something that I did learn from Ravi when he mm-hmm. says, whenever you're answering a question, make sure you realize you're answering a person rather yeah. than a question. And so you're saying the same thing. It is a it is Absolutely. a person. So so how do you deal with? Let's just take and we only got about a minute before the break, so we can pick it up on the other side. But let's just take one of these difficult issues in which, or or one of these issues that you deal with in the book, Staving Truth. Uh, say gender identity. Okay, that's that you got a chapter on that. Start us out here. If if someone is asking you a question about that, how how can you get them to even care about your answer? Yeah, I think the first thing is to, uh, is to is to ask another question, is to find out what is the gender identity issue for them. Uh, if they actually have true gender dysphoria, the way you're going to answer is completely different uh, mm-hmm. than if someone is using people who have gender dysphoria as a poster child for their own desire for autonomy. In other words, if they're saying, I want to be able to choose and be and say and do whatever I want, not based on an actual feeling of a gender dysphoria with my body, but because these people have that issue, then I'm allowed to choose whatever I want. How you answer those two is very different. So I'm a big fan of finding out what is the gender identity issue. And maybe you don't even have a dysphoria, but you think people should be able to choose whatever they want. I think the way to get them to understand that you care is to ask that question first. What is it about this that actually matters to you? Mm. Yeah, just be direct with it. That's a good way of doing it. Why, why does this matter to you? I haven't even thought about asking that question. It's such an obvious one. We're talking to Abdu Murray, his new book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. Excellent for today's culture. And we've got to be tuned into today's culture so we know how to reach the people in today's culture. And you'll be able to do that better by getting Saving Truth. We're back in just a couple of minutes with Abdu Murray. I'm Frank Turek, website crossexamined.org. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Website crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. Um, My guest today is Abdu Murray. His new book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. We're going to get back to Abdu in just a second. wanted to mention uh, the week uh, weekend of June... What is it? Nine and ten. I'll be at a church in Cupertino, California. That's near San Jose. We're doing. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist on Saturday, 
And then on Sunday, I'll be speaking at the services there. All the details are on our website and also our app. If you don't have the app, two words in the App Store, cross-examined. Cross-examined, two words in the App Store. Uh, And uh, that is the 9th, a Saturday, and the 10th, a Sunday. So hope to see you guys out there. Also speaking at Summit this year, summit.org. If you haven't sent your young person to Summit, you need to do so. Uh, there are, I think, seven or eight different sessions this summer, two-week sessions. Some of them are in Manitou Springs, Colorado. Others are in Pennsylvania. Others are in Tennessee. You can go to summit.org to learn more about that. All right, back to my friend, Abdu Murray, Saving Truth. Abdu, you draw a great distinction in this book between freedom and autonomy, and you really get to the heart of the issue that I think people are struggling with in our culture. What is the difference between freedom and autonomy? Yeah, this is an important one because, uh, you know, Os Guinness once said that you can judge the health of a culture by the way it embraces its virtues. And one of the chief virtues, if not the chief virtue of Western culture, is the idea of freedom. We've stopped talking about freedom. We think we're talking about freedom, but we're really talking about autonomy. Uh, in today's culture, where we elevate preferences and feelings over facts and truth, the preference is the most important thing, and freedom is no longer the issue. So autonomy comes from two Greek words. It comes from autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. So when you're autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. You can do, say, think, feel, or be whatever you want, whenever you want, in whatever way you want. And we think that's synonymous with freedom, but it's not. Autonomy is unfettered ability to do whatever you want and be whatever you want. Freedom is different. Freedom actually has to have boundaries. It necessarily has boundaries. In fact, um, it was Chesterton who made that beautiful analogy when he said, you may feel that you're free. Um, even in art, we have, we, have, we, have, we have limitations. Because if you feel you're free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you'll find out you're not free to draw a giraffe at all. You may try to free a camel from his humps, but you'll find out that you freed him from being, being a camel. Every time you deal with facts, you deal with uh, a world of limitation. And freedom and truth necessarily go hand in hand. That's what John 8, 31 through 36 is all about. Jesus is talking about truth setting us free. Knowing the truth sets us free. So truth has limits. It has what's limits. It excludes the false. Um, it excludes the fanciful. Um, so truth has to have limits. My kids would have no freedom to play in the backyard when they were younger if there was no boundary, because my backyard backs up to a main road. If they didn't have a boundary, all would bounce into the road, and they would hurt themselves, and I would be terrified of that, so I wouldn't let them into the backyard. In other words, the purpose of the backyard could not be fully experienced because there wasn't a boundary. But because there was a boundary, then the purpose and the freedom to enjoy that purpose could be realized. Mm-hmm. We want autonomy with no boundaries, and that just leads to utter chaos. My preferences, if I'm a lawn to myself and you're a lawn to yourself, and my preferences happen to conflict with your preferences, and truth is no longer the important arbiter between us, when we clash in the public square, the public arena of ideas, um, it won't be truth that decides. It's going to be power. And that is ultimately going to lead to authoritarianism, which is enslaving. So isn't it ironic that autonomy, which we think is free, actually leads to slavery? Freedom respects boundaries necessarily has that. I think the public gets this wrong. The non-Christian world, and even the Christian world to some extent, gets this wrong. They think the Bible is anti-freedom because it has these so-called arbitrary rules. And the reality is the Bible is anti-autonomy, but it is very pro-freedom because it recognizes that freedom and truth go hand in hand.
And we see that playing out now in the courts when you have a same-sex couple trying to express their autonomy, that they want to do whatever they want to do. And I say a Christian baker or a Christian photographer is now being forced under the threat of pretty hefty fines to participate and support and lend their artistic talents to, say, a same-sex wedding when it is against their moral or religious beliefs. So it's odd, well, it's not odd, it's exactly what you're saying, Abdu, that now one group of people has uh, what they claim to be autonomy, but they won't grant, a, grant autonomy to the Christians, see? <laughs> the, the Christians yeah, yeah. don't have that autonomy that the same-sex people have now uh, in, in this scenario. In fact, you write, I don't even know what page this is, on page 20 of 218, you say uh, a group of, of people can start undermining some people's freedoms to serve their own autonomy. Uh, and so yeah. I think it's a very important distinction what you're making here because all life has boundaries. If you don't have boundaries, you're going to have trouble. And I think C.S. Lewis said something like this at one point. He said, for any progress to be made, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. So how do we get people to realize this, Abdu, that when you say there's got to be boundaries in life, you're, you're, you're not necessarily limiting their freedom, although you might be to a certain extent, but you certainly are putting limits on their autonomy. How do you explain that to them so they can understand the point? Yeah, I think that in a very pragmatic culture where we, we've stopped believing that if it's true, it'll work, we think that if it works, it's true, uh, which is, you know, obviously fallacious. But um, I think yeah, that yeah, lying works, but it's not true. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, you know. It's exactly by definition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But I think that the way to do it is to be, if we can be pragmatic in this sense, is that we can point out that autonomy doesn't work. Um, it leads to three things, three very, very bad consequences. If we get this freedom question wrong and it's, it's and disjointed from truth, we have three main consequences. The first consequence is we lose our ability to reason. We actually lose it because our preferences are sacrificed on the altar of our autonomy. Sorry, I'm sorry. our reason is sacrificed on the altar of our, our autonomy. So, uh, we, like, we prefer that all religions are equally the same. Mm. We prefer that everyone be able to do whatever they want and express themselves. But mm. then I, you ask the question, everyone, really? What about, you know, Maoists? What about Hitler? What about what about uh, the, the the old lady who's a Christian down the street who doesn't want to um, you know do certain things or support certain certain things? Whether it's a pro life issue, whatever. All of a sudden, preferences, autonomy is going to clash. We're going to win, and we're going to lose our ability to reason in that respect. But the second consequence is that we lose our sense of moral accountability because if we're autonomous, then there is no God for us to actually um, uh, be accountable to. And by the way, if there's no God for us to be accountable to, why do I have to be accountable to a person? Um, why, does the, why does their autonomy have to get in the way of my autonomy? I'm autonomous, after all. Yuval Harari put it so beautifully when he said that we are basically more powerful than ever, but have very little idea of what to do with that power. Then he says, is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? That results in a lack of accountability where you have protests on campus, for example, that are, that are protesting the free speech of certain people, and they're doing it violently in the very places where the free speech movement was born, mm. which is, of course, confused as you want. So you have lack of reason, lack of accountability, and then you have a lack of human value. There's a reason why certain people can go on, can't go on a campus without fear for their life. There's also a reason why um, 
uh, uh, people are looking at people and saying you can actually make uh, real arguments that parents should be able to kill newborn babies, not preborn, but newborn, because the baby doesn't have doesn't have value unless the parents give it value. Well, we're starting now down a path and down a slope where we are the ones who determine human value. So I think that how you get them to care and how you get them to see this is a bad problem, autonomy is a bad problem, is to point out the chaos and the consequences of no reason, no accountability, and no human value. And uh, I think when you show them that and begin to show that and defend it with the facts, I think that really starts to resonate with people, and I've seen it resonate with people. We're talking to Abdu Murray. His new book is Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. He's got chapters on all sorts of the issues that we deal with in our culture today with the same insightful commentary he's been given here on the radio program. And uh, you, there was another line in the book that I was reading earlier today, Abdu, that really struck me. And it was the line that said, there really are no atheists, that everybody seems to have something they worship. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. And that comes from David Foster Wallace's address at right. Kenyon College. When he said in, 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 the, in the day-to-day uh, doldrums of adult life, there really is no such thing as atheism. Everyone worships something. He said the beauty of worshiping something transcendent. Now, he wasn't a Christian. He said if it's JC, but he meant Jesus Christ, or Allah, or, or you know, uh, the Brahmin, or whatever it was, is that these things aren't dependent upon you. We ultimately worship something. He said if you worship looks, you will hear every wrinkle will be a thousand deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will always feel weak. If you worship money, you will never feel like you have enough. All these things are idols that he says will eventually eat you alive. So there are no such things as atheists in the sense that everyone worships something. Now, you might believe there's no God, but what you have to do is replace him with you. Mm. And that's what I think the autonomy culture is all about. And isn't it interesting? All these little thousand deaths we die, whether it's wrinkles in the face, or if it's the lack of money we have, or the lack of power, or the lack of uh, our ability to do sexually what we want with anybody we want in whatever way we want, all these things lead to ultimate emptiness. They just don't get you there, because, and that's naturally so, because we have replaced transcendent with the transient, with, the, with, with the, that which perishes. Um, how much more empty could that possibly be? And I think that's what's going on here is that there is no such thing as atheism uh, in the rea- in reality. We've simply decided to worship ourselves. In fact, I've said it before in this program, ladies and gentlemen, there's only two religions in the world. You can either worship the Creator or some aspect of the creation. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, that we tend to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And we're either worshiping the Creator who created all things or something about the creation He created. And quite frequently, it comes down to our own personal autonomy. That's why we're resistant to the Christian message. When I ask people on a college campus, and I know Abdu does as well, when we ask them questions like, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they say no. The reason they're saying no, obviously it's a lack of reason, as Abdu, you were just saying. <laughs> they've, they've given up reason to, to firm up their own autonomy. And uh, they don't want there to be a God because they want to be God of their own lives. And that's really the issue. That's why the quote from uh, from Wallace, I think, is that who you said it was from Wallace? Uh, in, in your Wallace, book? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That quote is, is in uh, Abdu's new book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. He's talking about the fact that people, many of them are not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest, and they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. 
And, man, the show goes by too quickly, Abdu. We're coming up on our last segment now with Abdu Murray. You need to get the book. We're just scratching the surface of it here because it's so rich and so interesting and so practical. So you're just going to have to get the book. And we'll come back with Abdu for our final segment in just a minute. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. Saving truth, finding meaning and clarity in a post-truth world with my friend Abdu Murray, the brand new book. You need to pick it up. Oh, one thing I forgot to tell you. We've got another online course coming up uh, on the introduction to theology with my friend Michael Patton, who's a, uh, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. All the details, if you go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you'll see it. It starts in early uh, June. And the interesting thing about the online courses over there at Reason U is uh, they are all courses where you get to interact live with the instructor, if you take the premium version, live with the instructor on Zoom video. So when I teach I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, you interact with me or stealing from God. When Gary Habermas teaches the resurrection, you interact with him. Or Dan Wallace teaches on the uh, New Testament documents, interact with him. Well, Michael Patton, you'll interact with him uh, on this new Intro to Theology course. So check it out there at a reason you... Well, you just go to crossexamine.org and click on over there. You'll see all the courses up there. Uh, anyway, we're talking to Abdu Murray, the new book, Saving Truth. Now, Abdu, there's an entire chapter entitled or titled Clarity About Sexuality, Gender, and Identity. And prior to the break, we were talking about autonomy and how people want autonomy and and they have desires in sexuality to be completely autonomous to do whatever they want, even to the point where they they want to try and physically change their their biology. And I mean, obviously you can't do that, but they try. What do we say to such folks? How do we minister to such people? What do we do about this? Yeah, and I think this is an important one, especially for Christians who are listening. I think there's this one statement that I quote in the book. Um, that's uh, important, and it's not my statement originally, but it's an author that I quote, who says that um, if we're looking for, for example, heterosexuality as more normal, than ho- or sorry, more nor- moral than mm-hmm. homosexuality, then we're missing the boat, because all of us are in a state of sexual immorality. All of us yeah. are. Yeah. So Christian, Christians don't reach out anymore. We reach down to people who have different sexual desires. Um, but we should be reaching out. And how do we do that? I think one thing is to I think acknowledges autonomy issue. This is an important thing, um, uh, and to show off the chaos that it actually brings about. But here's why I think it's important: it isn't so much to, for when it's sexuality and gender. It isn't so much to say just what the Bible says about these things, because oftentimes they know what it says, or at least they have a, a thing in their mind about what it says. The biggest issue, I think, is to say why it says what it says. If you look at the sexuality question. When uh, I actually developed this essentially in a response to a young lady who would ask me a question at an open forum who was a lesbian, and she wanted to know what different religions, including the Bible, had to say about sexuality. And in fact, I think her question was something along the lines of, I've looked everywhere at these various religions. What does Christianity have to say, if anything, different from what other religions have to say? Here's the thing that I, that, that I think is important that I said to her, is that you have to understand what the Bible says. I'm not going to compromise on that. The question you have to ask yourself is, why does it say it? It's not because it's say, God is saying, oh, this behavior, this is icky, arbitrarily icky, I don't like it, it's gross, stop doing that. Um, it's, it's more along of, the Bible isn't prohibiting certain conduct, it's protecting something sacred. So not prohibition, but protection. Um, so I said to her, and I think this is true, fundamentally true, the Bible uniquely says we are made in God's image. No one else says that. Um, 
And if that's the case, then we are inherently, not incidentally, we're inherently sacred. And if we are the product of something in, in our bodies, but also the way God has allowed us to be born into this world, if we are sacred product, then the process is sacred. And if the process is sacred, then it has to be protected because that which is sacred has to have boundaries and not be common. If it becomes whatever you want it to be, then it's common and it's, it's throwaway and it ceases to have any luster or luminosity or beauty to it. But if it's protected because it's sacred, then it has specialness. So what is it? Why is, why is it sacred? Because it produces sexuality, produces males and females. God said specifically, because you're male, you bear the divine image. And because you're female, you bear the divine image. In other words, we're sacred in our maleness and in our femaleness. And so to swap the other two out so that you can have someone just like you in a relationship is almost to lose something, well, actually is to lose something, because you lost something about God's image in swapping out a female for a male. And God doesn't want that for us. We lose something in the process, and He wants us to have the fully orbed experience. But why within the bonds of marriage? Why not just have have a sexuality outside the bonds of marriage? Because it actually tells us about the unity that we have. It's a unity of diversity. When the Bible says Adam and Eve become one flesh, it uses that Hebrew word, echad, which means a unity. The unity is you use an echad for a cluster of grapes, one echad of grapes. But Adam and Eve become an echad, not yachid. Yachid means one. Numerically, they become unified. And the Bible actually describes God in the, in the Shema and other places as the echad. He is the ultimate unity of diversity. So a man who's not a woman and different than a woman uh, comes together in the unity of diversity of marriage, which gives us the privilege of reflecting the divine, who is a unified diversity. And then, of course, that leads us into the reflection of uh, what ultimately is the consummation of history, which is the marriage of the God, the clean, the pure, the eternal, and the absolute, to a once very defiled, very finite bride who he cleans up, and there's a unity of diversity there. So what I told that young lady was essentially, the Bible wants these things for you. God wants these things for you, and so in his prescriptions in the Bible, he's not prohibiting gross conduct. He's protecting something beautiful and sacred. He wants that for you as a beautiful woman made in God's image. I got to pray with her afterwards, um, which is just amazing to me. Please over the gender issue, too, because um, there are those who struggle with the real, honest, actual gender dysphoria. And I think that we have to... Mark Yarhouse, in his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, actually pointed this out. If he had a breakthrough with someone who had, who had genuine gender dysphoria, and not everybody does, it's extraordinarily rare. Right. If you looked at her, he said to her, I don't think you chose to have this gender dysphoria. You don't want it? Because even people who aren't Bible believers, they'll say, I don't want the dysphoria, I want unification, I want a congruence. So they'll change their body instead of their mind. Right. They don't want fluidity, they want congruence. Right. Um, so he said to her, I don't think you want this. And that's when the breakthroughs happened. That's when it really happened. She thought she was a sinner for even having the desires. Uh, and this, this dysphoria. Uh, but the reality was that it's not welcome, and it's a result of the fall. All of our discongruent or incongruent desires are a result of the fall, every one of us, and that's how we begin to help people through, is to validate the, the pain of the experience without actually condoning the result that the world wants to give these people. Um, and I think we have to um, also see the facts. 
facts are the people who have trans uh, have sexual reassignment surgery are still far more likely to kill themselves or hurt themselves than the general population. So it doesn't help. So we have to realize what does help. And again, that goes back to identity. And if we give them their true God-given identity, tell them what it actually is, I think that helps. Will it be a panacea? Well, of course not. But it is a stepping stone. And uh, in the book, I quote a woman named Melinda Selness, who talks about her desires, her, her discongruence between her incongruence, I should say, between her gender, how she feels, and what she actually is. She makes this beautiful statement, without quoting the whole thing, where she says, essentially, to um, go through pain and suffering because of the dysphoria, but I submit it to Christ. She said, it's not meaningless. On atheism, my suffering would be meaningless, but it's not meaningless. Um, she says that basically the suffering that we see, that I experience, is something that reflects the divine, because suffering is the hallmark of the Christian faith. That suffering, the very tree of suffering, was the very tree of life, and it is by Jesus' wounds that he's recognized by Thomas. In other words, it is the suffering that characterizes you sometimes as a Christian, as someone who submits to this uh, kind of a story that ultimately what's going to happen is a unity, um, even though there's incongruence now. That causes suffering later on. It'll be it'll be glorious. Especially, in, I mean, some, yeah. I was going to say, especially in America, Abdu, we have this false notion that if everything isn't going well, that somehow God doesn't exist. He's evil or he's forgotten about us. When the scriptures teach exactly the opposite, that we can be made more like Him by going through difficulty, and He's actually promised us persecution and difficulty. But Christ has overcome the world, and one day all the pain and tears will be wiped away, but it's not yet. Now, we just got yeah. about a minute a minute or so, Abdu, this TV, I mean this TV, we do TV too, but this is this radio program just goes so quickly, <laughs> especially when you have a great guest yeah. like you. I just want to ask you about uh, the image of God, because so many people are confused about that, because when we think of image, we think of a physical image, but God's an immaterial being. So what do you mean when you say image of God? What does that mean? Mm, uh God as being essentially there's a number of there's whole books on this, but right. um, we bear God's image in the sense that different from every other creation, we have the ability to think, to mm-hmm. reason, and to form attachments, and to ask the why questions. What are we? And all these things. We have a creative mode to us. God is creative. We 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 have the privilege of reflecting the divine splendor. It's not complete. It's it's very limited, and we've marred it. But He has given us human beings above deer, above mollusks, and above dogs, this, um, this ability to reflect something of the divine. He is the value giver, and he is the objective value giver because he's the source of all reality. And that image of God on us gives us an infinite value. So I think that's what I mean by what it means to bear the image of God. And in the world that wants to, to, to foster human dignity, well, only the Christian faith gives you the basis to foster and champion human dignity. And you personally investigated it. Growing up as a Muslim, you looked at all the evidence, and you came down on the side of Christianity. And now you're out there with probably the top Christian apologist in the world. You're on his team. You're out there at colleges, universities, churches all over the world with RZIM. By the way, check out RZIM.com, ladies and gentlemen, or is it .org? Probably either one will get you there. Yeah, .org, RZIM.org. Abdu, where else can uh, people get a hold of you if they, they want to? They go to abdumurray.com. Uh, they'll find out more and more about the book, of course, uh, more about me. And uh, if you go to rzam.org uh, and you go to the Teams section, it'll have a bio. And if you want me to speak at your place, you 
can make a request there too. I'd love to do it. Okay, that's Abdu Murray, A-B-D-U-M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. Abdu, it's always a pleasure having you on, and thanks for doing Saving Truth. Great book. Thank you, Frank. I'll good to be with you. That's Abdu Murray, ladies and gentlemen. Check out his website, abdumurray.com, also rzim.org for Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Well, Abdu's a big part of that, North American director. It's always a pleasure having him on. This is a great book you need to get. Very relevant for today, ladies and gentlemen. So check out Saving Truth. And I'll be back with you next week, ladies and gentlemen. God bless. See you then. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.